I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to let you know that today's episode is written by a good friend of the podcast and respected Canadian military historian Alex Fitzgerald Black of the Juno Beach Center and the popular history podcast, Beyond Juno. I just want to spend a moment and talk about this great center, the Juno Beach Center. You see, the Juno Beach Center is Canada's second World War Museum in Normandy, France, established by veterans and their loved ones in 2003. The museum is dedicated to preserving the legacy of Canada's service and sacrifice throughout the Second World War. It is much more than just a D-Day museum. The Juno Beach Centre Association is the Canadian charity based in Burlington, Ontario that owns and operates the centre. Part of their mandate is to educate adults and children about the role Canada played to preserve the freedoms we enjoy today. As part of this educational mission, the association produces the podcast Juno Beach and Beyond, Canada's Second World War podcast. It's Canada's first podcast dedicated to the telling of Canadian stories from that war, from a war that changed the world, from a war that changed Canada. You can check out their extensive library of past episodes at junobeach.org slash podcast or you can subscribe to Juno Beach and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts. So here we go, an episode from Alex Fitzgerald Black of the Juno Beach Center. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Amid the shriek and crump of mortars and bursting shells, Sergeant Aubrey Cozens finally made it to the relative safety of the Sherman tank. The 23-year-old veteran of Normandy and the Scheldt hugged the cold steel of the tank for a moment, catching his breath after a death-defying dash across open ground. It had been a difficult morning. Cousins and the rest of his battalion, the Queen's Own Rifles of Canada, backed by a squadron of 1st Hussars tanks, had begun their assault at 0400 hours. They were attacking the lower slope of a ridge, defended by fanatical German paratroops, now fighting on German soil. 
The Canadians needed to take the German strong points in the area, including one at the small hamlet of Muschoff, to facilitate the capture of the nearby ridge and road network. Casualties had been heavy. Cozen's company had lost all of its lieutenants, so the sergeant took command of his platoon, which was down to just four other men. They had covered his dash to reach the only remaining tank in support of the platoon. Cousins climbed up on the turret, exposing himself to German fire and began to direct the crew to fire on enemy positions. After repelling a counterattack, Cousins ordered the tank forward to attack the German strongpoint consisting of three farm buildings. His four men followed close behind. The Sherman tank rammed the first building, opening a gap for Sergeant Cozens to exploit. He entered the structure and killed or captured all of its defenders. Then, in quick succession, he repeated this effort to clear the remaining two farm buildings, all the while under intense machine gun and small arms fire. Minutes later, as his men began consolidating their hard-won gains, a German sniper ended Sergeant Cozen's life. Aubrey Cozen's was the first of three Canadian soldiers awarded the Victoria Cross, the British Commonwealth's highest gallantry award, in February and March of 1945. This is Season 5, Episode 12, Kicking in the Door, Canada Invades Nazi Germany. Today's book recommendation is none other than Terry Kopp's famous Cinderella Army, The Canadians in Northwest Europe, 1944 to 1945, from University of Toronto Press, 2006. For anyone interested in the Canadian war experience in Northwest Europe, this book is a must-read. Okay. By early 1945, the Canadian Army had been fighting in Northwest Europe for more than seven months. Canadians stormed Juneau Beach in the early morning hours of D-Day, June 6, 1944, supported by the Royal Canadian Navy and the Royal Canadian Air Force. Over the summer of 1944, the Canadian Army grew its presence in Normandy. You had the 2nd Canadian Infantry Division arrive, joining the 3rd Canadian Infantry Division already there. The 4th Canadian Armored Division arrived later that month. These forces would form the core of two Canadian Corps, which was part of 1st Canadian Army. The presence of an army-level formation on the battlefield was a first for Canada, although British and Polish divisions stood in for Canadian troops still engaged in the Italian campaign. 1st Canadian Army followed up its success in Normandy by capturing the Channel ports along the northern French coast of La Havre, Dieppe, Boulogne, and Calais in September 1944. Then, the army advanced into Belgium and Holland and fought a difficult battle to clear the Scheldt River of German defenses and finally open up the port of Antwerp. Only with this major port open to Allied shipping, could the invasion of Nazi Germany begin? 
The Battle of the Scheldt, as it came to be known, concluded in early November 44, and the army received a break from heavy fighting. During this well-earned rest, the Canadian army made a conscious effort to raise the morale of its soldiers, especially those in fighting units. Infantry and armored soldiers rotated out of the line near Nijmegen. The small Dutch city, in fact, became a Canadian town, with Canadian troops billeted with local civilians in the area, and in return, the Canadians shared rations with their hungry hosts. As 1945 dawned, preparations were underway for the final battles to end the war. This meant bringing the fight to the enemy on the enemy's soil, i.e. invading Germany. Now at this point, 1st Canadian Army was quite large. It had expanded to 470,000 troops, 1,200 guns, and 3,400 tanks. General Harry Creer commanded the largest military force ever assembled under a Canadian general. But the bulk of his strength was British, with nine British divisions attached, along with Belgian, Dutch, Polish, and even American units. An elaborate supply system supported this multinational force, capable of distributing 350 different types of ammunition in quantities that it was said if stacked side by side and five feet high would line a road for 30 miles. Moving the troops and their supplies into position for any operation required an estimated 35,000 vehicles traveling an average of 130 miles each and using approximately 1.3 million gallons of petrol. Now, the plan to take the war to enemy soil was devised by Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery, who was the commander of 21st Army Group, of which 1st Canadian Army was a part. Now, Montgomery's objective was to destroy German forces west of the Rhine River. The Anglo-Canadian effort in this attack would be an assault from the north, known as Operation Veritable. After two days, the 9th U.S. Army would then strike from the south-southwest to cut in behind the Germans facing this Anglo-Canadian attack. The planners dubbed this American portion Operation Grenade. So effectively, you have Operation Veritable coming from the north and Operation Grenade coming from the south, this kind of massive pincer movement. For Veritable... The 1st Canadian Army had to leave the Nijmegen area and moved southeast to take over the Rhineland. This was a narrow strip of land between the Maas and Rhine rivers. The Dutch-German border actually followed the Maas River in that sector. For the first time, fighting was taking place on German soil, and the Allies expected fierce opposition. Adolf Hitler had ordered his generals not to yield an inch of ground, and all soldiers fighting under the Nazi banner risked execution for cowardice or criminal neglect of duty. Three defensive lines protected this area. The first was a sort of preliminary series of outposts. The second was known as the Siegfried Line, and it ran through the Reichswald Forest. And the third was a series of fortifications that ran through the Hochwald Forest. To slow down the Allied progress, the Germans destroyed dikes and flooded the area. 
February's milder weather and thaw softened the muddy ground. This hindered the advance of armored vehicles and artillery. Nonetheless, the operation began on the 8th of February, 1945, with airstrikes and 1,200 Allied guns spitting fire at German positions. Fighting under 1st Canadian Army was 30 British Corps. This corps marched towards the Reichwald Forest, that second line of defenses. On its left flank was the 3rd Canadian Division, nicknamed the Water Rats, who earned this name because they kept having to clear flooded regions north of what was known as the Nijmegen-Kalkar Road, this sort of impenetrable morass of flooded territory. In order to do this, the Canadian infantry of the Water Rats Division used buffalo amphibious vehicles, but they could not unfortunately count on any artillery or tank support. This fleet, however, of specialized vehicles, these buffaloes, supplied by the 79th British Armored Division, became known as Creer's Inland Navy. The Germans, for their part, could rely on excellent defensive installations, anti-tank ditches, networks of trenches, fortified positions, as well as an apparently inexhaustible supply of weapons and ammunition. They were now fighting for their homeland, and that thought increased their determination. It also rained most of the time. The humidity and the cold created very uncomfortable combat conditions. In spite of all of this, the operation went off to a good start when the Siegfried Line was broken early on February 10th. In spite of the success, the wider battle was not going as planned. You see, originally scheduled for February 10th, Operation Grenade, that is the American attack from the south, could not go ahead. The U.S. Army had to postpone its offensive for two weeks when the Germans opened the Roar River dams. These fast-flowing waters made the American assault crossing impossible. In the absence of this southern American threat, the Germans were thus free to commit their reserves to the Anglo-Canadian front. In one week, the Germans had three infantry divisions, four parachute divisions, one panzer grenadier division, and one panzer division all in action facing the British and Canadian forces. These forces represented some of the best troops left to defend Germany. Planned as a rapid advance, the weather and the German response turned Operation Veritable into a miserable, attritional, slugging match. From February 16th to February 20th, 3rd Division alone lost nearly a thousand men, killed, wounded, or captured in the brutal fighting in terrible conditions. 1st Canadian Army actually took 8,500 casualties in two weeks. British troops, however, took the lion's share, with 6,700 killed, wounded, or missing. The Canadian figure was close to 1,800. 11,000 Germans surrendered during this period, while the Anglo-Canadians killed and wounded an estimated 12,000 German troops. Overhead, Royal Canadian Air Force fighters and fighter-bombers, the 2nd Tactical Air Force, had been active throughout the battle though the overcast weather severely hampered their activity, 
Canadian Spitfires would escort Typhoon fighter bombers in their rocket and bombing attacks, facing very little opposition from the German Luftwaffe. Number 439 Squadron's diarist heralded the work of the ground crews in keeping the typhoons flying despite the water and the mud. The diary reads, Some of the aircraft are parked in pools of water. Bombing up and servicing of the kites is no picnic under such conditions. The weather, however, cleared on February 14th, and the Allied Air Forces made a maximum effort RCAF squadrons flew 1,500 sorties, a single-day mark that they would never again reach. On February 21st, the Allied Air Forces began Operation Clarion, an air offensive aimed at strangling German communications between the Rhineland and the Ruhr. Bombers went after bridges and viaducts while fighters and fighter bombers pounced on German railway traffic. Now operating over Germany, the airmen had more freedom to roam and shoot up targets of opportunity. Everything below was considered a legitimate target. Folks, I want to just take a quick second to let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So, for instance, if you want to donate two bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. We survive heavily on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program as well. On our Facebook page and on Apple Podcast, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. And thank you to all who have donated. We could not keep doing this without you. Now back to the regularly scheduled program. After the Germans flooded the Rohr Valley... U.S. Army engineers estimated that it would take until February 24th for the reservoirs behind the blown dams to empty and for the floodwaters to subside. Lieutenant General William Simpson, commander of the 9th U.S. Army, decided to begin his offensive one day early anyways. Although his troops would experience difficulty crossing the flooded terrain, Simpson believed that the assault would actually catch the Germans unprepared. And he was right. The crossing was difficult, leading to heavy casualties among combat engineers in particular, but the German front began to crumble after the first couple of days. Even after feeding a pair of panzer divisions into the line, the Germans could only hope to slow the American advance. Monty's grand plan was now coming together. The Anglo-Canadians were facing the bulk of German defenders in the north, and the Americans had now exploited the German weak rear in the south. Now, as Operation Veritable ground to a halt on February 21st, another Canadian general was busy planning the Anglo-Canadians' next move. After the slow advance of the last few days, 
Lieutenant General Guy Simmons, commander to Canadian Corps, believed that a concentrated attack could capture the town of Zantin and the imposing Hochwald Forest, the center of the third German defensive line. This attack would come to be known as Operation Blockbuster, and it was scheduled to begin on the 26th of February. Its original purpose was to maintain pressure on German forces in the Anglo-Canadian sector in order to accompany the American push from the south. The rapid advance of 9th U.S. Army gave General Creer pause. Perhaps Blockbuster was no longer necessary, and the Americans should simply be left to fully encircle the German defenders. Montgomery, however, wanted attacks to go ahead, Creer did not question Montgomery's orders, so Blockbuster went ahead as planned. It was on the opening day of this renewed offensive, 26th of February, that Sergeant Aubrey Cozens led four men and a Sherman tank into Musoff, eventually being awarded the Victoria Cross. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, two Canadian Corps made good progress, despite facing stiff resistance, especially along the imposing Kalkar Ridge. Even as 9th U.S. Army plunged into the German rear areas, the Germans continued throwing their reserves at the Anglo-Canadian advance from the north and west. The struggle for the Hochwald Forest, which sat on the Kalkar Ridge, was bitterly disputed with the German defenders, and this lasted from February 27th to March 3rd. At 07.15 hours on March 1st, the Essex Scottish Regiment began its assault to clear the northern half of the Hochwald Forest. The soft ground meant that no tanks could assist Major Frederick Tilston's company. Tilston, you see, led his men in conditions reminiscent of the Western Front in the First World War. Hugging a creeping barrage, they advanced 500 yards through open country towards the woods, which were defended by two lines of German trenches. Tilston led his men through a belt of barbed wire, 10 feet in depth, before leading the rush into the first enemy position, destroying a machine gun post with a grenade. Already wounded once, Major Tilston led the way to the second enemy position on the edge of the forest, receiving a severe wound to his hip. He then joined his men in clearing the trenches. After this effort, and with Tilston's company down to just 26 men, German troops began counterattacking with mortars and machine guns in support. The wounded major directed the defense and personally began supplying ammunition and even a replacement wireless set to a neighboring company. He made six trips in total, crossing a road dominated by German fire. Wounded for a third time on his final trip, 
Major Tilston refused medical attention until he gave instructions to defend his company's hard-won gains and handed over command to the unit's only other surviving officer. Frederick Tilston lost both of his legs in this action, for which he received the Victoria Cross. The Canadians finally captured the town of Zanton, just east of the Hochwald Forest, on the 8th of March. Meanwhile, 9th U.S. Army moved from the south towards Vessel. Vessel is a town that borders the Rhine River. It's kind of like a bridge town, allowing the crossing to the other side of the Rhine. Now, to avoid getting trapped between the two Allied armies, the Germans retreated in good order to the opposite bank of the Rhine. By March 11th, Field Marshal Montgomery's forces finally occupied their portion of the Rhine's left bank. The battle for the Rhineland was now over. The gateway to Germany was open. Since early February... It had cost the Germans over 22,000 prisoners of war and a similar number killed and wounded in defending the gateway to their home country. The large number of enemy prisoners speaks to the restraint exercised by Allied forces. German troops, defending their homeland and under threat of execution, often fought to the last bullet, or at least until the local situation became hopeless. Frustrated that Nazi Germany refused to give in and grieved by dead comrades, one might expect Canadian troops to take out their anger on surrendering German soldiers. But in fact, these incidents were rare. In one month of heavy fighting, 1st Canadian Army sustained 15,500 casualties. Of this figure, 5,300 were Canadian, speaking once again to the multinational nature of the effort. During the battle itself, Canadian conscripts entered combat for the second time in the 20th century. They acquitted themselves well, and the troops accepted them so long as they could do the job. By the end of the war, 12,908 conscripts, or National Resources Mobilization Act men, went abroad, though only about 2,460 of this number reached the front lines. There was one final episode in the invasion of Germany that involved Canadian troops in support of an Allied crossing of the Rhine River on the night of March 23rd. This was called Operation Plunder. Air and artillery bombardments supported flat-bottom landing craft and amphibious vehicles as four British and U.S. divisions, together with a commando brigade, crossed the 500 meters to the river's opposite bank. 9th Canadian Infantry Brigade took part in this operation, crossing the river north and the town of Rees, and later capturing the German town of Millingen. But the Canadian effort was not done just yet. The British and Canadian troops in the Rhineland suffered tremendous losses from German artillery. General Bernard Montgomery decided to take care of this threat with a large-scale airborne operation codenamed Varsity. While the infantry crossed the Rhine in plunder, 1,589 aircraft flew over the area in successive waves. This was happening on March 24th. In full daylight and despite intense counterattacks, 
the parachute battalions in these planes dropped behind German lines and got to work as soon as they touched the ground. Some 1,337 gliders then landed in the drop zone with vehicles and equipment to support the airborne troops. Taking part in this was 1st Canadian Parachute Battalion, who landed in a wooded area along the Vessel Emmerich Road. German machine gun and mortar fire did not halt the Canadian paratroopers who reached and secured their targets. It was during this operation, around 1,100 hours, when Corporal Frederick Topham was treating casualties when he heard a cry for help from no man's land. Two medical orderlies went to the wounded man at succession, but both were shot and killed. Topham, seeing these deaths, went forward to aid the man. Although shot through the nose and bleeding profusely, the corporal shrugged off intense pain administered first aid, and carried the wounded man back to the safety of the woods with bullets cracking all around him. Corporal Topham then continued to aid the wounded and refused treatment until his unit cleared all of its casualties. Later, while returning to his company, he rescued three men from their burning vehicle amidst exploding ammunition and enemy mortar bombs crashing to the earth. Six hours of sustained gallantry earned Frederick Topham the last Victoria Cross awarded to a Canadian in the European theater of war. At the end of the afternoon, land and airborne troops made their junction and solidified the bridgehead on the Rhine's east bank. The battle was officially over, and the Allies had succeeded in crossing one of the last natural defenses of the German Reich. Now despite these and other crushing defeats, Nazi Germany kept fighting. After the Rhine crossing, one Canadian Corps from Italy joined two Canadian Corps in the Netherlands. The Canadian Field Army was whole once again. They had two tasks, to liberate Western Netherlands and to march through the northeastern part of the Netherlands and into northwestern Germany. The Canadians would secure their legacy as liberators and heroes in the eyes of a grateful Dutch nation. Indeed, practically all of the fatal casualties the Canadian army suffered in Germany were reburied in the Netherlands under General Career's direct orders. This happy circumstance allows for Dutch schoolchildren to learn the cost of their freedom by tending the graves of their liberators even those who died fighting in Germany. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.